I think we're actually living in the golden age of media, right? If you think about the kind of creativity that's been unleashed through all these different uh, channels that allows you to access audiences directly and to create creative tools, us recording a podcast, yeah. you know, using whatever off-the-shelf mm-hmm. tools we can find, and having it be, high, be higher quality, like that has resulted in a ton of great media for us to all to consume. Thank you for joining us for the sixth episode of Imagine Human. In this episode, we are joined by Ricky Yin, co-founder and CEO of Upbeat, to discuss how technology is disrupting journalism. After graduating from Stanford University, Ricky started Crowdbooster.com to help the UN, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Nike, JetBlue, and many other organizations measure and optimize their social media channels. After reaching profitability, Ricky pivoted Crowdbooster into Upbeat a platform which uses a combination of software and interpersonal storytelling to empower and optimize the delivery of stories for various businesses. In a time where fake news can sway a population and anyone can create a media empire from their laptop, Ricky discusses his goal to find the signal among the noise and deliver the right content to the right consumers. I'm Ricky, and uh, I started Upbeat about a year and a half ago. Uh, we're an automated PR agency, so that means if any of you is interested in getting the New York Times or getting on TechCrunch, instead of hiring an agency that might cost you ten, twenty thousand dollars a year, we've built software to help match your story with the right journalists, uh, and we can do that for you at ten times cheaper than traditional agency options. So what got you started on this and, you know, tell us a little bit about your journey. Okay. I started um, another company seven years ago when I graduated from college and it was about the coming disruption of social media. So at the time with Twitter and Facebook, uh, for the first time we're seeing people's ability to build an audience directly and connect directly with an audience. Um, so what that means is if you want to communicate something, yes, I'm to say, you don't have to go through the traditional gatekeepers, which is the media industry. So you don't have to go through radio. You don't have to go through television or newspapers. You can start your own uh, media empire from your laptop or your phone directly. So I built a business that essentially helped people build an audience using software tools. So what that means is we built a software platform that helped you measure the engagement of your audience on channels like Twitter and Facebook. Our customers uh, were brands, agencies, even traditional media companies as well. Even guys like uh, you know Time Inc. Uh, would use our platform to measure their their uh, social media engagement. Around a year and a half ago, after building that company to profitability, we decided to look for opportunities uh, in the space um, 
what we found was now that social media has become extremely pervasive and has uh, become part of our everyday lives, it essentially has completely uh, disrupted the industry that it's closest to, which is media. We're seeing uh, a huge fragmentation in the media landscape. And uh, so what that... So we're seeing ESPN laying off a ton of people. We're seeing Time Inc. Uh, potentially getting sold in the coming days, in the coming weeks, um, because there's so much competition on the internet from guys like you that's hosting a podcast. So we saw the fragmentation and decided that there is an opportunity to build new infrastructure to help uh, media find stories worthy of telling. Uh, and that's what PR does. If you think about it, PR takes stories and bring it to people and uh, who can tell those stories to an audience. And we think there's a much better way of doing it. So we decided to build a technology platform to power stories. Uh, so I'm a little bit interested in learning about like why you were passionate about this particular area. And uh, to I, I'm interested to hear a bit more about your journey as an entrepreneur coming from uh, your your particular background? Uh, so specifically, uh, I mean, I think David and I are kind of like heat-seeking missiles a little bit. So we uh, gravitate towards whatever we think there's a, there's a significant change. And I think everybody knows what's happening in the media right now. Uh, there's significant change. What people might not know is exactly why uh, there are so many layoffs and exactly why uh, there's so much fake news. Um, I attribute a lot of it as downstream effects of the social media disruption. And what that means is there's intense, intense, intense competition for any of the traditional media guys that used to enjoy a monopoly that they created from their, the distribution infrastructure, infrastructure that they've set up. So if it's newspapers, that means... The newsstand, that means the delivery trucks, that means the paper boys, that means the printing press, right? So yeah. these are dis uh, distribution infrastructure that monopolize the attention of the end user. With the internet, that's all out the door. With social media, that's out the door, right? So what that ended up uh, being is there are now um, people are not... Uh, practicing journalism like they used to because they can't because it doesn't pay the bills, right? So they can't, they cannot fact check. Um, they uh, are compelled to write whatever is incendiary, whatever gets the page views because now you can measure it. Uh, and now, uh, even if you try to uh, create a separation between editorial and the business side, uh, you really can't keep that separation there for much longer because uh, if you keep separating it, uh, you're not going to get many eyeballs and uh, the, the business suffers the right? business just suffers um and now you have you know you guys starting a podcast competing with every single audio format out there right yeah. and so this so that's the the opportunity we see is okay the uh industry is getting um, disrupted. We see the symptoms. Uh, now, as engineers, as product people, software people, you naturally gravitate towards infrastructure level stuff. So you basically the doctor, right? You're like trying to figure out what the root cause is. Um, so social media is a driver. What's actually broken about this whole system? All right. So if speed is 
going to be a big deal if finding the right stories is going to be a big deal in today's environment uh, and competing for them, then the current way that we uh, transact in stories needs to be updated. So then you start looking at what's the current way, how do you transact in stories currently? So uh, in the past, uh, PR people's job is to take stories from companies that pay them a fee, they're the broker, and then they go in between the companies, people with stories, and they go to the contacts in the media and get the stories told through journalists, ultimately ended up in front of the audience, right? So that infrastructure has not been updated for, uh, you know, ever since it was invented in the early, like, 19th hundreds right mm-hmm. so it hasn't been updated for um, you know, 100 years it still act like a relationship business it still assumes that only a few media players matter and it mm-hmm. still assumes that you can build those relationships and it has complete um uh yeah it doesn't is not updated at all right it doesn't leverage any of the uh data that we have on the internet now it doesn't leverage any of the software that we can build today mm-hmm. um to make that more efficient it doesn't account for what actually matters now right so what if a pr agency can bring you a story at buzzfeed and tell you that your story is going to perform if you choose to work on this particular story um not only does it check the box of being a good story like has good characters has good elements but it will increase your traffic uh by 20 percent right mm-hmm. compared to your average article right like why isn't any pr agency thinking about that right it's because and they haven't been working uh, in this world for that long, they haven't been able to answer these questions in a way that's meaningful. So we see an opportunity to essentially update that infrastructure for the media. So who is an example of your ideal customer and how they would go through the process of interacting with your service yeah. and what kind of advantages they would experience? Yeah, so most most of our customers uh, honestly cannot afford PR firms because PR firms charge 10, 15, 20K a month. And they also tend to sign you in onto long-term contracts, three, six, nine, 12 month contracts. So most of our customers are priced out by default. So um, yeah, so a lot of our customers are actually people who have great stories and who are priced out. Um, So what this means is this could mean lots of small businesses. This could even mean individuals with great stories, like your friends that may have done something spectacular. Uh, This also means bigger companies that want more flexibility, uh, departments within bigger companies. So we have an example of a large corporation where they have a centralized PR team uh, that's kind of managing the narrative of the entire uh, company, um, but uh, a specific product manager with a very interesting feature uh, or initiative inside a company, they m- most likely will not be able to get the centralized PR resources. So they can easily sign up on our platform. We're like a website you can sign up for. So anyone can swipe a credit card and just sign up and all activate a PR agency on your behalf right, to, to help you communicate the story that you're trying to communicate. Um, The onboarding process, usually we require a customer to come to us with a story to help us evaluate whether or not, because a lot of people think they have stories, but they don't actually have 
stories. Mm -hmm. So our acceptance rate is about 30%. Mm -hmm. So you you sign up on our website, 30% of the time you get accepted, which means that we think your story has enough character, has enough conflict, has enough kind of elements that could potentially be an appetizing story to somebody. Uh, And then all you have to do is the next step is talk to us for 30 minutes. We will pre-interview you just like a journalist would end up doing, but we'll pre-interview you to get the story out of you. So an example could be you're a product manager at a big company. You just launched this feature. We will ask you basic questions that you may not have thought of. It's like, why is this significant? You know, why should people care about it? How does it speak to, you know, the, the Trump, you know, pop political environment? Like, is there a time peg? You know, because these are all the same questions that journalists will end up asking you anyway. So you just ask us and we help you take that story after the conversation, set it up on our uh, kind of online dashboard and uh, find the right people and manage the entire outreach process for you. So all you have to do is sign up and spend 30 minutes with us, basically. What's different about us is that we are an all-in-one solution that helps you, you know, find the emails. We helped found the emails already. We validated it. We have previous relationship with them. We have a lot of data about what each one of them is interested in. And uh, we can help you um, manage the campaigns, send, send, send it out. But because we're, because we're you a all-in-one solution, we get the entire feedback loop is a closed yeah. feedback loop system. So that helps us. Every single transaction that we make helps us understand what the media is interested in, what yeah. this particular journalist is interested in, based on her history of interacting with us. Do they like the story? Do they not like the story? What do they like about it? How do they tell? How do they ultimately write about that story? Right. right? So we're capturing all these signals uh, to ultimately be able to uh, help guide our customer to say, if you want an article. Uh, in a tech blog, but you want it from a more scientific angle, somebody who knows about this who will not be very snarky when they write about your story. Like, you know, here are the people that you might want to, right? Like, we have all the information to programmatically answer uh, a question like that than um, a traditional agency that might be doing it based on 20 years of reading articles in the space. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it- it's an interesting process that Upbeat is using, uh, but what I'm interested in understanding is the combination of the human element and understanding these stories combined with the technology and how you're using technology to scale something that was previously done yeah. by humans. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the reason why there is a 30-minute pre-interview, which um, from anyone's perspective would be that doesn't sound very scalable um so our intention is to obviously build a completely scalable technical platform and us as engineers and kind of outsiders we we can sort of take that perspective uh and think that we could do it and the reason why we have a 30-minute pre-interview as a part of an onboarding process is because currently um, it takes uh, the alternative is to filling out a form and people are actually not very good at telling a story 
writing it down. Just like having a podcast, it's much better to have a conversation. Stories come out. Uh, people are just naturally storytellers when you're they're in conversation. So we try to mimic that. So it's kind of like a hack for us to get stories from people and figure out the interesting elements through having a a uh, managed conversation with them. Um, so going forward. Uh, so what we've done on the technical side is uh, we've gotten really good at uh, collecting and, and processing huge volumes of data about any particular journalist. So we can tell you, for example, um, yeah, not only which journalists may be interested in, in your story. So we're not even looking at... We're not just looking at things like this is a technology reporter or this person writes for Recode or, or, or TechCrunch, right? So we're looking at uh, m- much more than that. So does this person uh, tend to work on stories uh, about big companies like Uber and Apple or uh, they t- tend to take a personal angle on stories, right? Would they be more amenable to you pitching your founder story than others? Like we're, we're looking and... and trying to understand preferences of each journalist on on that level uh, ultimately to try to um, and then on our end we're also trying to evaluate every story that we take so um, you know for example if you pitch us a story that has to do with uh, July 4th or maybe a memorial day maybe like veterans right so it's common pr understanding to say okay around july 4th there will be a lot more barbecue stories a lot around memorial day there will be a lot more veteran stories right these are just like common sense stuff and it's true right because it all starts with demand are people looking to read about those stories um but we can evaluate a story's merit based on um, a lot more subtle factors than that, right? So if we pick up uh, recently, there's a lot of stories about maybe diversity or something like that. We can recommend that to a customer and say, like, do you have any stories that has that speaks to this topic? Because there's currently a one-week window where if you try to sell the story, like, it would be uh, have a higher chance of getting getting placed, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the stuff that we will ultimately bake into our system so that when you're crafting and creating your story, you would be able to uh, know what to plug into the boxes. Like what, what kind of things are you learning about the media that are really interesting? Like what types of stories are people consuming more frequently? Mm-hmm. Where do you see storytelling shifting yeah. in terms of the media and what people are interested in consuming? Yeah, um, I think, um, so I actually think I think brands are still powerful, like especially in the day and age of uh, where there's a lot of noise. Um, you sort of have to have shortcuts to qual- filter and qualify. So I, I still do think brands are, are meaningful, even if the, the numbers don't hold up in terms of what people assign value to. People still think that a New York Times story is a lot more influential in all these other measures metrics um, even if another story somewhere else has more eyeballs right but like the power of the brand because it, it connotes a lot more than just popularity um, so I think that's still the case um, in terms of like what kind of stories um, as you can imagine it's much uh, easier now to uh, disseminate 
uh, information, regardless of whether or not it's true, regardless of whether or not it's substantial, because there is a huge appetite to create. There's a huge appetite to consume whatever information out there there is. Um, and um, because of how, uh, I guess, widespread the consumption devices are, it's um, uh, like if you had any uh, if you had any thoughts about how the media works and th their role in in being strong gatekeepers to information, I think with the internet and with social, uh, we all need to be more discerning ourselves uh, because they literally cannot do that job that well anymore. Uh, so. I think that's something that's interesting. So as consumers, consumers need to be more discerning. Yeah, because like basically the people who are in the business of helping you decide what matters cannot do that job that well anymore. Because they're biased by certain metrics. They're, or they're... biased by metrics. They, they can't keep up with the noise themselves. So how are they going to help you um, curate what matters? They can't do that that well. Um, yeah, they, we haven't gotten to the point where we have effective tools um, to augment these guys' decision-making. So you were saying you built out Crowdbooster into a profitable business, but you decided that's not what you wanted to do. Yeah. So maybe you could speak a little bit about what Crowdbooster's future might have looked like yeah. and why you weren't super excited about pursuing that as a business. Yeah. Because to me, it seems like that's a growing industry if you're working on like social media analytics and helping existing brands and new brands deal with social media engagement. That seems like a great business to me. Yeah. So in the beginning, we took advantage of the fact that Twitter had a uh, analytics vacuum, basically. Like no mm -hmm. one, they didn't have native analytics um, despite that. A bunch of people were using it and uh, trying to make a business out of it. Um, so, uh, but, but they had a very open API. So our first feature was actually just uh, helping you count retweets, helping you count replies, and helping you measure the engagement on your tweets. We ended up expanding to other social media channels, ended up building this entire suite that essentially helped you analyze uh, your social media engagement. Um, so what we could have become so there could have been several directions. So we could have become an all-in-one all analytics suite. So social media, I think, still is an extremely sharp wedge to uh, crack into existing industries. So if you want to kind of play against the big boys, maybe the big boys are Omniture or Google Analytics, social likely is something that they're lacking. So if you can uh, kind of crack the social not, then you can potentially expand your reach into the rest of the organization and provide them with web analytics, with product user level analytics, whatever it is that they might need. Uh, alternatively, you could go from there and uh, become a communication suite. You could help them manage uh, their blog, you know, their email channels. So any anything that has to do with communication. So again, social is a very strong kind of uh, wedge to begin the conversation with businesses to help them solve the problems they have in a much more comprehensive way. Right. Usually starts out because social already, social is kind of like Yelp and you're a business owner. It's already happening with or without you. So they have, they usually have essentially put an intern and then put full-time teams on 
social channels and they have all these problems, if you can solve that really well, that's where our company would have gone uh, if we had continued. Uh, we got to a profitable state. and uh, So uh, I think one thing that's interesting about that is that because advertising on these social media platforms became such a huge deal, yeah. I think with that the analytics of these platforms also improved, right? right? Because Facebook advertising would be pretty meaningless right. if, unless they can show a direct link between selling more products. Right. Um, so I think from, from that perspective, yeah. there's probably competition for themselves. Yeah. Um, the link were never that direct. A lot of uh, social ads ends up being a branding exercise. Sure. So like the link was never going to be that direct to begin with, but you're right. The platforms themselves, as the advertising products matured, had more of an incentive to beef up their analytics offerings. Right. And while that, actually most people thought that was a threat, but it was never really that big of a threat because uh, uh, if you think about it, every single one of these native uh, analytics platforms were very incentivized uh, and designed towards selling more Facebook ads to you. Right. They're not going to tell you how to mix your spend between Pinterest sure. and Twitter and, and Facebook, for example. Everyone is geared. And also, they've had to make their products uh, either geared for the biggest spenders, um, mm -hmm. which is the, what they ended up doing, or make it easy so that any small business can 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 spend money easily on Facebook, for example. Right. So a lot of my peer companies have folded, or if they've gotten big, they've usually moved away from social. So mm -hmm. social opened up a conversation, but now they're a customer management suite. They're like a competitor to Zendesk, right? Or maybe social uh, opened up a conversation, but now they're a... Um, content marketing suite so right. their their main business model is blog is, is right. email channels that kind of stuff so um, you we would have had to evolve our platform and compete head-on against some of these other existing competitors managing maybe it's email or blog whatever and we didn't see it's a good way to start a conversation but uh, the advantage wasn't quite there that makes sense. So, I guess going back to our original question, um, so at that point you decided that this wasn't really the path you wanted to go down. Yeah. Um, these are not the companies that you would want to like end up becoming. You didn't want to become a content marketing company. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't because of the type of companies they are. I think, I think when we started a company out of college, it wasn't really, we weren't really sure what kind of company we wanted to start. Um, if you had... A lot of uh, VCs ask you, like, what's your exit strategy and that kind of stuff. Um, so is it IPO? Is it, do you want to get acquired? You know, like, at the time, we just said, yeah, we want to go IPO because that's what you were taught to say. But I don't think you really know what that means until you actually build a company and you get it to profitability and you look at it and you're like, you know, anyone could do this. This is not that interesting, right? Like, you then realize, um, maybe I got into the business to do something much bigger um, because I like the scale that technology affords you. Building a business to profitability is very different from building a venture scale type of business. The way you think about uh, your approaches, there's a reason why there are specific business books dedicated to building a technology venture scale business versus a generic 
you know, business book that you might be able to get from Harvard Business School, right? So, and that, because I think it's, they're actually not on the same path. Doesn't, just because you got to profitability doesn't mean that you will be high growth, mm-hmm. right? And just because you're high growth, oftentimes we get this question from the media, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will ever be profitable, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think there's very different strategies and tactics. So at that stage of CrowdBooster, you were clearly providing value to some customers, but I guess you just didn't have enough leverage, like you weren't redefining an industry. Yeah. Right? Like you could have right. been a very successful business, right. but yeah. you weren't and able to we fundamentally change social media. Yeah, we could have 5X'd it, 10X'd it. I think it was totally doable, but we wouldn't be doing it with um, a lot of significant advantages. Um you know, and uh, having chosen the path to go on um, the profitable path, I think also closed up some opportunities for us, right? So, um, you know, understanding that it, it made us want to kind of go back to the drawing board and um, play this differently from the beginning. That sounds great. I mean, you clearly knew what you were doing, and it seems like a really valuable experience to have done this for a few years, but then to know that that's not exactly the path that you want to like spend, right. you know, the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, on. you definitely, you definitely learn. Uh, you you learn. Uh, you know what? How to build a product. You know how to. Uh, like I think building a product, building businesses now is relatively simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the challenge now is going from like, you know, building something that people want, which is what YC preaches, right? To um, you know, building something that scales. Uh, like building something people want. That first thing. Right. Uh, I actually think it's very learnable. I think it's very reproducible. Uh, and then it's about like, how do you swing yeah. for the fences? I actually agree with you and I feel like a lot of YC companies or a lot of Silicon Valley companies get to the stage where, you know, you wouldn't really call these failures. Yeah. But they just like can't scale, they can't, you know, give the 10x for the VCs who are funding them. Right. And it's just not really what the founders like set out to do. Yeah. But they're still great businesses. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times as founders you you realize that you you don't want you don't want to chase the the valley kind of dream, right? Like once you get to profitability, you can you think you can make a mil, five mil, ten mil, uh, and you you're happy servicing, delivering value to customers every day, and that's growing naturally. It doesn't grow exponentially, um, and you like it. You end up liking it, and like it's it's kind of people don't admit that here, right? So. I think that's uh, I think that's another part of it is is um, you know what happens then, right? Like yeah. what happens when you get to that stage? What is the future for you, and what is the future for Upbeat? Like I said, a lot of things are in flux in the media world. I think we're bringing in, uh, bringing to the media industry a very fresh perspective. We're working. We have a pretty unique. Uh, set of DNA to be working on PR, which most uh, engineers uh, either, I mean, they're just not interested in working on it or it's too obscure or it's just, I I think we're very different um, players in the game. And so I'm I'm just excited to um, see what we can do uh, along with all this change that's happening without us having to do anything. Um, I'm excited about 
so okay what i think is i think we're actually living in the golden age of media right if you think about the kind of creativity that's been unleashed through all these different uh channels that allows you to access audiences directly and create creative tools us recording a podcast yeah. you know using whatever off-the-shelf mm-hmm. tools we can find and having it be, high, be higher quality like that has resulted in a ton of great media for us to all to consume and the trust that we have in uh, that we used to assign to traditional brands we will begin to assign to individuals and individual brands like micro brands and it doesn't take that much mm-hmm. to actually develop that trust right so it doesn't have to be the name itself um, and I think that's what a lot of traditional media is kind of resting on is that yeah. like, because I have this brand, if I continue to double down on this brand, like that will never go away. It will go away. And uh, a lot of these Bill Simmons, whatever, they just move to wherever they want to go because mm-hmm. they, their name alone is good enough. Mm-hmm. Plus they have all these other, other things going for them. Yeah. That ties back to your point about distribution channels, right? right? Yeah. I think, you know, 50 years ago, a good journalist at New York times, doesn't really have the ability to just like yeah. leave the New York you Times. You have to stay there. Yeah. Yeah, but now they can just start their own publication. They and, could. Uh, they could get on Twitter and totally. yeah. it's just or they could completely start their own personal brand yeah, and become exactly. an independent, independent right. force. Right. Uh, I'm excited to see that ten times or a hundred times. Right, because most people think this is a temporary period. I think it's gonna just get even more exciting if you can solve some of the fundamental infrastructure issues that's that makes it makes people hesitate when they say uh we're not gonna be we're not gonna get all these great netflix shows or hbo shows we're not gonna get all these great journalism and these different bloggers exposing different things about the world no we're gonna get more Mm -hmm. right like that's what the internet has enabled uh and we will get more um people are just thinking that it's not possible because it's gonna break at some point right i think um more people like me on uh, my team will show up um, to basically um, uh, build the necessary components for those for the, for that future, that much more positive future. You wrote this really interesting medium article about or it's entitled "Privilege and Inequality in Silicon Valley," and I was wondering if you could share a little bit with our listeners your thesis underlying that and how it's impacted you as a founder? Um, that's actually interesting because that's an example of the thing that went viral that I never expected to go viral. Um, so, But it's a really good story. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. A, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good story. I think a lot of it has to do with the title because that's my co-founder came up with the title. Uh, uh, before it was much longer because mm-hmm. I'm long-winded. <laughs> um, but I think the essential thesis of it is this idea of mindset inequality and that's a term that my co-founder david actually came up with is because i keep i spent paragraphs and paragraphs trying to compare what it's like growing up poor or under resourced or under disadvantaged in some way and the response to this article actually taught me that disadvantage uh, it comes in all shapes and sizes, and actually most of us are disadvantaged in, in one way or another, so everyone can share in this experience. That's what, probably why it resonated so much. But the central thesis is mindset inequality. Um, so if you grew up uh, 
poor or if you grew up in a small town middle of america versus if you grew up in a more metropolitan urban environment um, uh, having more resources being exposed to the world in a more complete way um, what how do you think that is very different from how um, you know a more advantaged um, upbringing uh, trains you to think um, so i was exploring that because most people talk about the resource disparity in terms of access, in terms of uh, mentorship, in terms of resources, money, capital, that kind of stuff, right? And yeah, so that's been written about a lot. But that what bothers me is that it's not that I don't, you know, it's not the resource disparity, it's the thinking. Right. I think for you, the way I think about it is that, you know, the resource disparity existed when you were growing up, but then you went to Stanford and now you can get like a really good job. So it doesn't exist, but you're still stuck right. in this mindset right? and, and, because you grew up with this yeah. uh, with, in poverty. Right. Right. And that disadvantages you as you're doing a company yeah, as opposed to someone who has always been rich. Exactly. Nobody talks about what that mental state looks like because mm. it's really hard to articulate. So sure. like I would... Some examples I use in there uh, alludes to something like, uh, let's say access. So growing up, if you don't have access to opportunities, you become really good at accessing opportunities if you are somebody who is trying to get out of the situation. So Mm -hmm. what ends up being your personality, you adopt a personality that's very friendly. You can you can uh, you know be friends with everybody. Uh, You know people like you instantly and they start showing you opportunities so they start opening doors for you so you get really good at opening these doors mm-hmm. um and then you go to a place like stanford where doors are open to you by default and you have like hundreds of doors mm-hmm. right and then then it's like how do you choose which door to go into and what happens if you choose the wrong door yeah. to go in right how do you pick yourself back up that is a skill that others have if you come from a more advantaged background. And that's obviously this is generalization, but uh, you might have gotten better at practicing how to choose the right door and how to carry yourself uh, when you when you walk in the wrong door. So you say there's like more fear, right? Of like, yeah. because you've never had this much opportunity when yeah. you finally do, right. there's a lot more fear right. of like choosing the wrong thing. Right. And if you choose the wrong thing, yeah, there's no safety net, mm-hmm. like all these other right. things, yeah. that, right? So, um, right, but... But uh, the reality is, if you go to a place like Stanford, you do have a safety net, right? right. And, and right, but like, if it's not, if that's not ingrained yeah. in your thinking, then you uh, end up making suboptimal decisions. You, um, yeah. So I guess not not doing a startup and just working a, like yeah, a yeah. nice job. But Even not though really... you could do a startup, right? Even right, though yeah. you you could totally you, and in fact you should because right, the yeah. option is there, right? Uh, right. So I think. Uh, I think that's the the mental um, kind of uh, disparity that I, I was trying to highlight. And, um, and what kind of things have you been doing recently to help you overcome this? And you know what what advice do you have to young people that might be you know going through similar things and might be you know interested in taking risks but might be fearful at you know not having a safety net to take those risks? Um, I think it's really hard. Uh, so I think it comes with practice, actually. So um, one of the things I do is I visualize uh, 
I happen to have very good uh, friends, uh, very fortunate to have friends that come from very different backgrounds from me. Some of them more resource, others don't, but it doesn't matter. Like I've had the privilege to model my behavior and, um, okay. So very crudely, I would just think about what a rich friend would do in my situation, right? Like, so it's kind of like the same question that, you know, Facebook would have posters on, on the wall. So I guess assume if you had unlimited resources, assume failure is like, doesn't matter, right? Like, what would you do? Like, yeah, there's slogans like that, but it's really hard for people to actually think yeah. through the steps. Like, what would my rich friend do in my situation right now? But I happen to have gotten in contact with them, which is... And I think doing that regularly helps me um, overcome some of my uh, default uh, thinking patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, also knowing that having the awareness not that my default thinking pattern is potentially True. Uh, uh, disadvantaging me, um, that's a good start. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really thinking that you could... So I think one thing is also to be proud of what you have. So if you happen to be a very friendly person, able to open any doors, like be proud of that because that's what got you to where you are today. Mm-hmm. Not uh, what I'm saying is not saying not like completely just go against what you've been about your entire life. Um, embrace that, but don't lean on it too much. Right, like start developing new skill sets, new ways of thinking, um, and ideally you achieve the state where you can nimbly move and use whatever skill sets you have, and you have options. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what I find most disturbing to me is uh, it becomes if you come from a poor family or something, you go to a privileged place like Stanford. It becomes us against the world it becomes like me and my few homies who are like come from similar backgrounds we don't you know party it up with people right. don't look like us people who don't sound like us who went to completely different backgrounds because we're you know we're different from them i never want to be like them because they're yeah. disgusting with all their money right like <laughs> i think that isn't that healthy um, you were saying the opposite actually helped you a lot right like hanging out with people right. who are very different yeah from you. and obviously i'm uncomfortable in every one of these circumstances yeah. but like not uh digging a hole and right like just you boxing should, yourself yeah, in. Don't yeah, don't box yourself in. Like, wear proudly, like, a badge, right? But, mm-hmm. like, don't, like, pick up new stuff, right? Yeah, like, yeah. learn, be curious about why... Don't let it restrain you. Yeah, like... And don't let it define you. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was good, so... Yeah, <laughs> I thought, yeah that was I thought, good. I thought I'll okay. stop there. Yeah, okay. No, that was really great. Yeah, yeah. Th- thank you. Thank you for that. Cool. Thanks so much, Ricky, for uh, for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Cool. Er. <laughs> so it's my pleasure anytime. <laughs> no, they, thank you very much for... And from uh, now on, this podcast will be my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is now a Beats podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, th- thank you very much for being on the show today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. As always, don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes if you haven't already. 
And check us out at imaginehuman.com for additional show resources, including a link to Ricky's powerful Medium article, Privilege and Inequality in Silicon Valley. Also visit our website to check out our past two episodes on the future of dance and meditation. At Imagine Human, our mission is to share the stories of inspiring individuals innovating across diverse industries. If you know of someone we should interview, please contact us on social media or email us at imaginehumanity17 at gmail.com. Thank you.